Welcome to the Europe in the World podcast. In this series, we will discuss the very relevant topic of European energy policy and the unfolding energy crisis. We invited four different guests to join us in this series. This podcast project is overseen by Dr. Kaya Shielded, Associate Professor of International Relations at BU's Party School of Global Studies, and Jean Monet Chair in European Security and Defense. My name is Lisi. I'm a master's student in international affairs at BU. And I'm Greta, also a master's student in international economics. I'm Jacopo, an undergraduate senior in international relations. I'm glad to welcome Henning Leusten, Director of Energy, Climate and Resources at Eurasia Group, the world's leading geopolitical risk consultancy. Mr. Gloysten specializes in geopolitical risk in oil and natural gas markets and will join us today from London. Good morning, Mr. Gloysten, and thank you for taking part to our, to our podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So it's been said for months now that Europe's ability to get through this winter without Russian gas is going to succeed, although at high cost. But the stress on utility companies will not end so soon. In the past weeks, there have been talks in Brussels about price caps on energy, but such a big subsidy will require an immense stretch for governments. So how will Europe cope with gas supplies and prices after this winter? And should consumers expect average higher prices to persist? That's a very good point. Um, so the, the energy crisis in Europe will not end after this winter. That's the bad news. The uh, good news is that it is manageable. As this winter has shown, the gas to replace Russian molecules exists in the market and it will exist next year as well, but it will come at severe costs. Um, we've already seen that this year and this will repeat next year. It'll probably even increase next year because it's worth keeping in mind that in 2022, for about half of the year, we actually still had significant Russian gas imports available, uh, which we almost certainly won't have next year. So uh, this means that while there will probably not be energy shortages next year, it will cost a fortune to to uh, to get that energy into Europe. Um, and that means ongoing high prices. Now, it's possible that um, energy prices won't spike as much as they did this year to record highs, um, but it will probably be more like an ongoing constant headache of prices rather than literally being punched in the face. Uh, so it's... Um, uh, and this will uh, cost a lot of companies, a lot of governments, and a lot of household consumers all dearly. And this is where the problem is. Uh, so what we see for next year is that um, governments and households and companies have been so focused on getting through this winter Come March, April next year, uh, they, they will initially think like, yes, we've gotten through this and the crisis is over. And then they will realize they're going to have to do it all again. And um, some governments will run out of fiscal steam, literally, in having to bail out the energy companies, having to bail out households to, to support them with prices. They will not have enough cash for this. And that will cause uh, d uh, discussions in the European Union um, of uh, the richer countries helping the poorer ones. In this case, you know, as usual, it'll be Germany, but Germany will also be obliged to help because, of course, its over-reliance on Russian gas is what partly got us into this crisis in the first place. Um, then companies, uh, it's it's going to be the same. They've spent so much money and effort this winter to reduce consumption, to access alternative energy, and they're going to have to do it all again. Um, and it is the same for households because governments will not cap house prices 
uh, at such low levels that people will think um, that you can consume as much as you like again. They really want to send the message that you have to consume less because it has become a national priority or EU priority to, of, of strategic, of, of national security importance to reduce consumption permanently. And that means for the next year or three, prices have to be high enough to disincentivize consumption so that people consume less energy, because this is the only way to get through the next few years of without any Russian oil, gas or coal and without shortages means, yes, we can buy alternative LNG for, um, and pipeline Norwegian gas, but we also need to consume less. There, there is a gap and that is about 15 to 20 percent of European consumption needs to come down pretty much forever. It's possible. It's going to cost a lot of money in the next two years. And after that, it should be okay. But next year will hurt. We're quite certain. This is indeed a challenging scenario for European energy policy. And your point about LNG and non-Russian gas sources leads right into my next question for you. On November the 13th, Mozambique flagged off its first shipment of liquefied natural gas to Europe a move that could help ease Europe's energy crunch as Russia squeezes supplies. The LNG left the local facility in Mozambique, operated by Italian energy giant Eni, and that represents a landmark project for the gas industry that places another African country onto the global LNG stage. The project started in 2017 and took five years to come online. So this shows that financing projects like this will require long-term investments in some African countries, and many of these will be new to the global gas market. So my question for you is, how will European energy companies like any uh, meet challenges such as contract length and the expected decrease in fossil fuels demand in the next decade, and as you just said, in the next winter? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so first, to, to follow up on Mozambique, this is a huge achievement. Um, Mozambique is a very poor country. I've visited it a couple of times. It is um, politically challenged. Um, and the fact that uh, they got their first LNG exports on time and on budget is an achievement by everybody involved. Um, so, and it comes at the perfect time. I mean, this gas, it's only one cargo now. Um, it's very welcome in Europe. Uh, interestingly, it should have probably initially um, gone to South Asia. And this is a little bit the dirty little secret uh, or the uncomfortable truth of Europe hoovering up the LNG that uh, maybe should have gone to South Asia um, or Southeast Asia. Uh, they're being literally priced out of the market. However, so this tells you that probably we need a little bit more investment into new LNG and pipeline gas as well. And as you mentioned, um, this will require some new contracts, which is um, another uncomfortable realization for Europeans because the European utilities spent the last decade wiggling themselves out of long-term contracts. They told, uh, including companies like Gazprom, but also Equinor in Norway, and Qatar, they said, no, we don't want long-term gas contracts anymore because we won't need any gas after 2030 because of the green transition. The reality now is a little bit different because Europe has to replace all those 155 billion cubic meters of Russian gas that came to Europe last year is gone pretty much. So they have to replace that. And of course, they will have to replace it not just this year, next year, they will have to replace it for another probably 15 years, in some cases, maybe even 20 years. That means that the Europeans are signing long-term contracts again. They're, these negotiations are ongoing everywhere in Europe. Um, you mentioned uh, any in, in in Italy. They're doing this. They're agreeing with Algeria, Sonatrack, some new contracts in Azerbaijan, Sokar, um, Mozambique. They, they own or cooperate 
um, co-own that facility anyway. Uh, the in Northern Europe, uh, there's new um, negotiations between uh, German utilities like Uniper with Equinor of Norway to sign up another bunch of 10 to 20 year contracts in return for a tolerable price. And uh, this will happen. Uh, you also see European Union companies now investing in the East Mediterranean for uh, Israeli gas to be uh, taken to Egypt and then exported as LNG probably to Italy, uh, Croatia and Greece. And uh, Qatar is receiving investment from Europe as well, which is all stuff that they really didn't want to do at the start of this year. But they're now it's it's a brutal reality and wake up, they have to. The positive lining here is that a lot of this money is already being um, channeled. So in these long-term contracts, they're trying to build, the Europeans are trying to build in caveats and provisions that will eventually lead to clean investment so that you take a lot of that money to then start building infrastructure for clean hydrogen. So um, hydrogen from natural gas and then using carbon capture utilization and storage, so CCUS technology to um, to get uh, hydrogen gas to Europe. Um, but that's, you know, this is a few years uh, down the road from now, but this is the eventual goal. Um, but yes, and this is another part of what we're saying at the start. This is going to cost a lot of money um, to secure that supply. But uh, of course, the sellers are very willing to, to listen to the offers coming in from Europe at the moment. No, yeah. And your last point about uh, clean energy uh, leads right into the next question for you. Because fossil fuels aside, Africa remains a great energy partner for Europe. And this becomes even more relevant in a discussion of energy transition, specifically in terms of solar, electricity interconnections, and you mentioned hydrogen as well. So can we imagine uh, in 5, 10, 15 years, a reorganization of Europe-Africa energy relations built on re renewables and green energy? And how would that look like? We, we have to imagine. It's, uh, it's, it's a imperative for both sides. Uh, so Europe needs the energy and uh, Africa desperately needs investment uh, and revenue. So it's, it's one of those famous win-win situations, um, if it can be done rightly. Um, and I'm I'm actually sort of cautiously optimistic on this because there is a huge development of um, what this new buzz term in Europe, supply chain diplomacy. Um, this is, of course, also happening with the EU and the US and Canada and so forth and Australia. But actually, probably the most imminent and long term sustainable um, developments here in terms of environmental sustainability, but also political and economic uh, partnerships is with Africa, because uh, Norway, of, of course, in the north as well, but that's just one country. Uh, the partnerships, especially in the Mediterranean basin, so with Iberia, the Spanish and the uh, Portuguese are working extremely closely with Morocco. Um, Morocco is one of the most, uh, the best places on earth to produce concentrated solar power, which you can then uh, run through an electrolyzer, and then you have hydrogen, and then you can either uh, pump it via pipeline uh, to Iberia. It's not very far. You can put it on a ship and uh, liquid ammonia, for instance, and uh, ship it over. Or, or you just put, put the solar into a cable directly into Iberia. So all these options exist. They all work. And these partnerships are already undergoing. Uh, likewise, Italy uh, is doing similar developments, again, with Algeria. So using some of the long-term contracts that they are agreeing with Sonatrack uh, to, to invest into future production of clean energy um, fuels. And uh, we shouldn't uh, also forget the Middle East here is fairly important as well. So the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, just 10 days ago, uh, shipped its first blue hydrogen to Germany, to Hamburg, in a container, which is a bit unusual, and that's not the form it will be taking in future, but it's a test cargo, and it worked, and uh, so this sort of stuff will will happen, and it is a, a, a 
as I said, an, an imperative for both sides for work because Europe needs the energy. Europe also has an interest in economic development in Africa uh, in terms of migration crises and fears of that. Um, that uh, Sustainable, clean energy is one of the biggest resources Africa can um, uh, can use, sell without doing much local damage and actually create sustainable revenue. So it's, it's one of those things. I mean, it's almost a no-brainer. So, you know, I, I kind of think it'll happen. It should be good. <laughs> it will be very good. And this is indeed very promising, especially um, at the present time. But I want to take a step back for our concluding point. So we have cargoes waiting to get to Europe and some of them even waiting off Europe's coast. Is the reliance on natural gas concerning for the achievement of the EU energy policy transition? And how far really have these emergency measures that follow the decoupling from Russian gas impacted the EU climate agenda? Yeah. So, of course, you don't want to replace one reliance with another one. Um, so uh, this is one of the reasons why the Germans uh, are a little bit reluctant to place all their bets on LNG imports. Uh, they prefer a diversified portfolio. That's why they're working very closely with the Norwegians here, um, because uh, LNG supply chains can get broken quite easily as well. Um, I mean, we saw a free port in the United States earlier this year. There was a huge fire. It's down. Uh, LNG can be politicized. We saw that under U.S. President Donald Trump. Um, he uh, so and of course, he, he's just announced his candidacy for 2024. That didn't go down well in Europe. Um, so th th this is a risk. Uh, Qatar is also not seen as a particularly friendly supporter of Europe strategically. It's, I mean, they're making money out of this, which is fair enough. But, um, and of course, Algeria is is also not always um, uh, an entirely stable country. So there are concerns here. Um, and that is why um, every European government and the EU itself, and even outside the EU, so the UK and Switzerland as well, have said this crisis must be used to accelerate the green transition. For sure, um, uh, the Europeans are, are currently ramping up coal-fired power generation as well. That is the emergency measures. Um, uh, they, they can't do without of it. But they are throwing money now at trying to accelerate the green transition in the 2030s and 40s to bring forward net zero, essentially. Um, and uh, because, I mean, it's it's basically, it's quite simple. If you have sky high prices for gas, oil and coal, so fossil fuels and supply disruptions, so you, you're paying a lot of money for unreliable supply, then this is a really strong political and investment incentive to invest into local clean energy supply. And if it's not directly local, from neighbors, um, so North Africa or Norway, this is, the, this is the political imperative. And of course, again, to reduce consumption. Um, so that that is where Europe will be heading because it's basically the only way because you, you, Europe can't repeat the mistake it made with Russia. So they will try and address this by actually reducing other reliances as well. Uh, and for the gas sector, it means to diversify your portfolio the most uh, you can. So from uh, Mediterranean, from Africa, from Norway, from the United States and from Qatar, so that if one or two break down, uh, you still have the others. This was very, a very thoughtful conversation on the current state and the future of gas markets in Europe. Thank you again, Mr. Gloyston, for taking the time to join our podcast and share your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.